and give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing from Psalm 40 and sing psalms, and we'll stand and sing verses 1 to 6. I waited long upon the Lord. He heard my cry and turned to me. He raised me from a slimy pit, and from the mire he pulled me free. Verses 1 to 6. Thanks that your your words uh, function at different levels, and even uh, these words we've just been singing 
Uh, we can sing them as of ourselves. You took us from a deep pit and set our feet upon a rock. And that's true of your people, but we also know at another level it's also true of the Savior himself uh, because uh, he found himself in a set of circumstances uh, that, the, that the word pit uh, hardly describes. Uh, as he found himself in darkness and in distress. And yet we thank you that he was taken out of that state of um, death where he, when he suffered on the cross and was at a marvelous resurrection and subsequent ascension to your right hand. And we thank you, Lord, that in a real sense he has been set upon a rock and that um, songs are coming because of what he did when he suffered and died and then rose again. That's an eternal song, one that will um, be sung by millions and millions uh, because of, of what he did. So Lord, it's good for us as we uh, meet here tonight to think about uh, the parallels uh, between Jesus and his people. But at the same time, we also know that there are big differences and that he was uh, holy and sinless and we are sinners. We are sin has affected every part of our being, our thinking, our affections our actions, our motives. Uh, we don't have any real idea of the, the widespread effects of sin in our lives. Often we are um, blind to them, uh, especially to our own sins, and it's not hard for us uh, to identify defects in others. But when we think of the Savior, uh, we think of one who was uh, sinless, perfect, always saying what he should have said and doing what he should have done, and consistent, a life marked by balance and harmony, something that we never achieve in a full sense. But we thank you, Lord, that he is our example, and therefore we can aim to be like him. And the amazing wonder is that one day all your people will be like him, um, glorified, and filled with the Spirit in a way that we can't even understand now. And we shall be fully balanced then. Our minds and our affections will be uh, entirely suitable to each other and our obedience will be permanent. And that, that's a wonderful day to look ahead to. And we pray, Lord, 
that we would be looking ahead to it uh, because the fact of the matter is we are getting closer to it as time goes by. So Lord, we give you thanks that we can come here on your own day uh, to have a time round your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word's a living word, a lamp to our feet, a guide to our path. And we need that as we make our way through life. We can't really take a step without your word. And therefore, we thank you that it's alive and it can speak to us in all kinds of places and all kinds of situations. And I speak and speak powerfully and clearly. And we pray, Lord, that what we think about tonight would help us as we live in this world. You know the various things that are on our hearts, the things that are burdening us, maybe perhaps even distressing us, or making us apprehensive, or whatever. And we just thank you, Lord, that we can cast all our burdens upon you. That's a, a marvelous invitation. And as with all your promises, which require us to do something that by nature we cannot do, your promises include the power. And therefore, Lord, when we are instructed to cast our burdens on you, uh, we thank you that you also provide uh, the strength to throw them. And we pray, Lord, that we would be casting our concerns on you. Lord, we realize we're in a world in which troubles come and in which um, disappointments come and a whole range of things. And we thank you, Lord, that we can just um, put them all on yourself. We pray for a family of uh, friends of Mary Gillis as they mourn her passing. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, the memories we have of her and of the various ways in which she involved herself in the work of your kingdom. And we realize that her commitment to you uh, took her to many different countries of the world. And we realize that in all these different ways she served you. And we thank you that your word tells us that uh, when your people pass away, that their works follow them. And whatever she sowed, um, the reaping will yet occur. Whether we know about it or not, and we just um, uh, give you thanks for what she did. And we just pray that you would be with her, her family and friends. Lord, we pray for your church throughout our denomination and throughout our country and indeed throughout the world. We ask you to remember your suffering church uh, wherever they are suffering. We realize they can suffer for different reasons. Uh, some are being persecuted, and others are living in situations of deep poverty. And we just pray, Lord, that you would remember them and help them today. And we thank you for their 
what often at least seems to us uh, to be their bright witness, and we pray that that would uh, continue. So, Lord, help them today. We don't have any real concept of what either uh, persecution or poverty means. But we do pray, Lord, that you would help those who are in such situations. So, Lord, be with us in our service, we pray. Remember those who are not able to be here for a variety of reasons. Uh, we commit them all to your care. And we ask you, Lord, just to remember us for good. So bless us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. And we can sing again to God's praise, this time from Psalm 22 in Sing Psalms. And we'll sing verses 1 to 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken and abandoned me? Why are you far from giving help? from listening to my anguish plea. Verses 1 to 8, and we can stand to sing. My God, my God, oh why have you
Uh, we can read from the book of Isaiah and chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And may God bless that reading. We can sing again to his praise, this time from Psalm 69 in the Scottish Psalter, uh, verses 16 to 21. Hear me, O Lord, because thy love and kindness is most good. Turn unto me according to thy mercy's multitude. Verses 16 to 21.
we can turn to the chapter we read there, Isaiah chapter 53, and we can read again verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, as we've noticed um, several times in recent weeks, uh, this particular chapter is quite unusual. Um, as was mentioned, um, witnesses don't normally exist before an event takes place. And yet, as we look at this particular chapter, we see uh, comments of witnesses about the cross. And uh, the way they describe the cross is obviously very personal and uh, very graphic. And as has often been pointed out, it's almost as if they had a, a seat around the cross and watched every event that was taking place and just wrote down what they saw. But of course, we know the reality is that this particular chapter, this servant song, fourth of the servant songs of Isaiah, uh, that this um, was written centuries before the event took place. Uh, verse 6 is the last verse of the middle section of this um, song. The each of the sections has three verses in it, so it's quite easy uh, to work out where we are when we're reading it. starts there, as we know, at verse 13 of chapter 52, and there are five sections. In section number two, uh, the witnesses um, refer to Christ's life what it was like as they were observing him in the language of, of the prophecy, uh, and as they looked at him uh, living in Nazareth and so on, there was no beauty that they should desire him. From one point of view, that's not too surprising. Uh, I suppose you could be like me and look at a statue and all we see is some stone. And somebody else can come across and look at the statue and see a great deal of artistic beauty in it. So um, we've all got our blind spots. And uh, the problem that people had with Jesus, of course, was that they had a, a permanent blind spot. And it was also a very pervasive one that they saw no beauty at all in him anywhere. Even, uh, I don't know if you know who the worst person was that you ever met, but if you do happen to recall who that individual was, um, then perhaps you can still say there were some um, good features about that person. 
But as far as these people were concerned, uh, with regard to Jesus, there was not one single thing that they thought was worth looking at. And, of course, we find that quite extraordinary because uh, we regard everything connected to Jesus as being beautiful and worth gazing at and looking at with admiration. But as we can see from the start of this, uh, in the second section there from verses 1 to 3, these witnesses, uh, they did not um, see that. And they confessed it fully. They, they admitted it. We don't see him. Didn't, didn't see any beauty in him there in verse 2. But by the time we come to the next section, beginning at verse 4, their opinion has changed. Something's happened to them, and they realize that his um, actions were actually all done on their behalf, and what happened to him happened to him instead of to them. And as we noted, the first half of verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Uh, that refers uh, to his earthly life, his public ministry. I mean, Matthew makes that very clear in chapter 8 because he says that after Jesus had um, healed a few people and um, got involved with others with all their different kinds of needs, Matthew makes it very clear that that was the fulfillment of the first half of verse 4 of this prophecy. And, of course, it's a wonderful picture of Jesus to see that that he carried people's griefs. Surely he carried our griefs. And the hour there, of course, is the hour of the witnesses. The people in this um, passage, this um, prophecy, who are depicted as the onlookers. Of course, they, it's, it's a device. It's a literary device that the prophet is using, these witnesses. They couldn't all have been in Nazareth and then 30 years later uh, happened to be following him around in his earthly life and then going to the cross and watching what happened there and so on. But we're almost encouraged as we read this, this song uh, to stand beside the witnesses and see what they have to say. So here they are, and this, this is a summary they give of his life. What a beautiful summary it is. Surely he carried our griefs. I mean, in the actual chapter that Matthew mentions there, Matthew chapter 8, that on that particular day when he healed um, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, and that evening we're told that crowds streamed to him with all their troubles. And he didn't just, as it were, uh, wave his hand over them all and say, um, whatever is bothering you, let it go. But they all came up to him one by one. And he dealt with each of them personally. 
and he carried their sorrows. He didn't just do that once. He did it repeatedly. You know, and, and that's why he's called the man of sorrows. Whose sorrows did he have? The sorrows of the people he met. He had empathy. He felt. And he always felt appropriately. He was never indifferent. He never turned a blind eye. He never thought about himself. Never once did he use any of his divine abilities for the benefit of himself. And as we progress through this song, it's his life that makes a first impression. Here was somebody that was totally different. I mean, some of his opponents, uh, when they came to arrest him, they said, never man spoke like this man. That was certainly true of his words, but it was also true of his actions. Never man did what he did. Everything about him was different on a higher level altogether. And his life, his life's, when people grasp what he was doing, his life takes on a completely new attraction. Of course, as we know, he was keeping the law on our behalf. But the law is kept inwardly as well as outwardly. And keeping the law includes having appropriate responses. And Jesus always acted, functioned the way he should have done. And of course, he took them away. We know all these people there that were not incident there in at Simon Peter's house. Every one of them had immense burdens. Each one of them too much to carry. But Jesus basically said to them, give them to me. And it affected him. What would be the point of giving your troubles to Jesus if you couldn't see that they had affected him? But they did. Always. There's many examples of that in the Gospels. That was what his life was like. And then he died. And they actually thought, as you can see the second half, verse 4, that God had punished him. 
punished him for his claims to be divine, which they regarded as blasphemy, and punished him because they thought he was doing all he was doing, miracles, they thought he was doing it by the power of the devil. So therefore, when he was stricken on the cross, and of course, stricken is a very strong word, When he was, they could see that he was stricken. I mean, they're witnesses. They could see that he was stricken. And they thought he deserved everything he got. And yet, if we get to verse 5, they change. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And in case we don't get the point in verse 5, they repeat it from a different angle in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid in him the iniquity of us all. Now, we all know that sheep is a very common biblical um, picture. Um, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And we, we like to sing it. And of course, Jesus liked to sing it. And, and when he was singing it, he wasn't singing about himself. At least he wasn't singing about himself as the good shepherd. He was singing about himself as one who had a shepherd. And of course, that was his father. And it's interesting to go through Psalm 23 and just work out how Jesus would have sung it when he talks about the valley of the shadow of death, what's he speaking about? But anyway, it's a psalm that involves sheep. And of course, there's John chapter 10, where Jesus says he's a good shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow him, and they do what they're expected. Very positive picture of sheep. But other times, um, the picture is not so positive about sheep because, as we know, uh, sheep have their defects. They can be, from our perspective, <clears throat> they can be very foolish and just wander off in any, any old direction and seemingly have a tendency to head off as close to the wild animals as they can possibly get and other features like that. And that's the picture, the negative picture that's here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So I'd just like us to think of a couple of things as we look at this, this verse 6. What does it mean to go astray? All we like sheep have gone astray. What does that mean, to go astray? And then, um, 
What does it mean, God's action? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? Just try and imagine it. If God was to put something on top of you, what would that be like? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, briefly at the end, some reactions that we should have. Going astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we can see from uh, the description here that there's both a collective and an individual. There's both a common trend. All we like sheep have gone astray. And there's also individual choice that um, we end up going our own way eventually. But we've got this common uh, tendency just to go astray. And, of course, we know where that common tendency comes from, don't we? It all comes from Adam at the beginning when he, when he chose to disobey God and started off the process of humans going astray. And ever since then, every single person that's ever lived has had this tendency in their lives just to go astray. It's automatic. You do it first thing. First thing you do every day is to go astray. Just think about it. You may have woken up this morning and said, oh, I'll have to read the Bible today. How long did it take you to do it? The, just, just a fact of life that we just go astray. We just, we're so used to it. It's just part of our makeup. And we've also got our own individual interests. How we show our own way of going astray. I mean, and it is our own way. Even if a million others are doing it at the same time. It's our choice. Whatever particular manner it is that we uh, reveal that we're going astray, we just do it. Somebody once said, there's only one right way, there's a thousand wrong ways. And that's true. And here, these people are saying that all we like sheep went astray and and as we think of the Jews, that's because that's who they are here, these witnesses, the Jews at the time of Jesus, just think of all the different ways they went astray. Some were Pharisees, legalists, thought they could work their way to heaven. But all they were doing was selecting their own way of going astray. Or there were Sadducees. I mean, their way of going astray was just to say there's nothing spiritual around. It's all fantasy. Or there were the Herodians at the time of Jesus, and their way of going astray was to assume that the best way to solve things was just to get some kind of human government arrangement. Others did all other kinds of things. Some will be taken up with all kinds of pleasures that were available. But whatever they were doing, all they were doing was showing that they were going astray. 
They had this common feature to their lives. They were sinners. They had just gone astray. And they discovered that their um, behavior, and it's interesting what they call it, and um, it's always important to note the exact words that people use. And here they describe, by the time they get to the end of verse 6, they describe their previous going astray as iniquity. It wasn't just a a personal um, feature of their character that didn't matter too much. It wasn't, say they had a bad temper. They didn't just say, oh, that's my, um, I inherited that from my grandfather or something. I mean, that's not how they regarded it. Wherever their way of going astray was, they had come to the conclusion that it was iniquity. And iniquity is a a kind of picture word. It points out to us the ugliness, the horribleness, the odiousness of our sins. It's almost our sins as God sees them. If I've got a bad temper, what does God think of that? Someone that's made in his image, losing his temper because for some trivial reason. Well, in God's sight, that's iniquity. It's not something to be dismissed. It's something that defaces us, defiles us, demeans us. And we can see that these people, these witnesses who had gone astray, they now realize that. I mean, if I can tolerate my sin, I don't see it as iniquity. Whatever it is. I may theoretically recognize it's falling short of God's standard. But if I don't feel that, I haven't seen it to be iniquity. So that's them going astray. They affirm the folly of their sin. Then there's the action of God in response to that. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we can see, almost to begin with, there's a kind of contrast here between what they do with their sins and what God does with their sins. What they did with their sins was to go off in different directions. Each one turned to his own way. 
But what God did with their sins was to gather all these sins together. Whatever these individuals had sinned, and in whatever way they had performed these sins, they all might have thought they're all detached from everybody else. And just various expressions of who they are and so on. But the first thing we're told about them here is that God just took all these separate sins committed by wandering sheep. And instead of gathering the sheep together, as it were, he gathered their sins together. Just collected them all in one big pile. And when we think how many sins we're guilty of, well, that's a, it's a huge pile, isn't it? But that's what we're told here, that God did that. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. He just picked them up and put them on Jesus. And when we think of this way of describing things, it, it actually describes the closeness of the activity, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, I, if I lay something on somebody, I don't do it from a distance. It's almost a kind of handover, except it's, it's a handover done with a certain amount of authority. It's almost you're taking this, and there's no chance of avoiding it. And God, the Father, laid on Jesus, hands on, the iniquity of these witnesses. And the, the closeness almost indicates the determination that they will land in the right place. That not one of them is somehow or other to fail to land on Jesus. And the rather extraordinary thing about it all, of course, is that, is that Jesus took it. I mean, he's the Holy One. If there's anything that's the exact opposite of him, it's our sins. And yet, in this kind of transaction that's taking place between the Father and the Son, it's almost as if the Father wants to get rid of the collection of sin, and Jesus is willing to take it. So there's this agreement. Yes, I'll take it. Just give me all of it. And when was the agreement made? And how long has it been going on for? Well, we know the answer to that too, don't we? It was made in eternity. It was a long wait, wasn't it? 
for that to happen, but here it is, it happened. But there's something else about this which is quite harrowing. And that is that the word to lay is a very aggressive word. It's not, a, it's not as if I'll drop it gently on you. I mean, sometimes if we give someone something heavy to carry, we hand it over gently. But the word that's here translated as lay is an aggressive word. It's a word that would be used by an army about to crush an, an enemy. Shouldn't be too surprised at that, of course, because it says later on, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And when we think, we might be a bit surprised to think that the father would do that towards his son. But when we think that it's going to be handed over with eternal power, and going to be handed over in the interest of divine justice. And it gives a different perspective, doesn't it, to this kind of peaceful image of transaction. And this is not the only time the Bible has this when it describes the cross. For example, Zechariah says about the cross, it's going to be a battle. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. I mean, what's a, short, what's a sword used for but for aggression? And this divine sword has been sleeping sound asleep, almost. But then this sort of cry goes out, and it's a shout, awake. And where is the Heavenly Father going to put his sword? Right into the heart of his son. And, of course, the sword is the justice. He's going to pay the penalty for our sin. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross. Endured is an awful word. Because it meant that every moment was difficult. It was never an easy second for Jesus on the cross. Endurance all the way. He endured the cross as he suffered our guilt. There's a, there's a hymn or a poem that sort of summarizes it all up, and I'm going to read verses of it to you. Written by Anne Cousins, the old lady that put Rutherford's sayings into poetic rhyme. But she also wrote one called, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. This is what she says in a couple of the verses. 
Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. Thy form was scarred, thy visage marred. Now cloudless peace for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. The biggest conflict in the history of the universe. Except in a certain sense, there's no conflict. Because the one on whom it's laid, with all divine force, accepts all of it. But there's nowhere like Calvary for revealing what God thinks of sin. So that's the action of God. Someone once said that, I mean, the, the image here, it doesn't really come across in our translations, but the image here is of all these sins that are being gathered to be laid on Christ, that each one of them is wounding him. That he feels, for, he feels them. Earlier on, he felt the, the grief of the people. But now he feels their sin. Their sins. Not just their sin in some kind of big sense. But their sins in their individual sense. So how do we react to all this? Oh, just a couple of suggestions. Surely there should be a sense of awe in our hearts. I once read somewhere, and I thought it was quite strange, but apparently at the, the Battle of Culloden, people from Inverness went out to watch it. <laughs> I mean, imagine that, going out to watch a battle. to see something extraordinary taking place. But well, we're invited to go to Calvary. We can join these witnesses because they give us word pictures. And, and we can stand beside them and we can see what took place. And surely as we see the Father laying on Jesus 
There should be a real sense of awe in our hearts. If it doesn't, there's something far wrong. There's never been a sight like this. A totally unique event. So we should be marked by awe, wonder. It's not a surprise that God is punishing sin. But it is a surprise that he's punishing his son. And if if we ever get to the stage where we just becomes a, a sentence that drops of our tongue, There's something wrong. And there should also be an awareness of the awfulness of sin. How many sins did Jesus have to carry in order to experience this? How many? What would one sin have caused him to experience? Almost the same. Because it's eternal. And my little sins, your little sins, actually we don't have any. There's no such thing as a little sin. Not a Calvary, there's not. There should also be affection for Jesus, shouldn't there? Why is he doing it? Well, Paul tells us Christ loved the church. And gave himself for it. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we want to see the love of Jesus, go to Calvary. It's a sight to behold. And one that always warms our hearts. We should also have a new appreciation for John 3 and 16. Don't know about you, but I always get the impression when people are talking about John 3 and 16, about God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. They're always speaking about it from the point of view from where it came. How great was God's love. But it's not so much where it came from, but where it went. God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son. Gave them to what? He didn't give them, as in a sense, to us, did he? He gave his son to the cross. The gospel in a nutshell. But you can't have the gospel without the cross. With the awfulness of the cross. The distress. The Savior's agony. And not just his physical agony. Bad although that was. But just his abandonment. So we should just be amazed. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only one who could lift it, this pile. The only one with the strength to lift it gave it to the only one who had the strength to carry it. I read a statement by, I'll stop with this, but I read a statement by Calvin about this. How we react to our own sins. And he said this, that each person should diligently consider his own sins his own iniquity, sorry, that he may have a true relish of that grace and may obtain the benefit of the death of Christ. I mean, the word that kind of struck me at that sentence was relish. But it wasn't so much that he used the word, but it was the order that he had. In order to get the relish, you have to diligently consider your own iniquities. And then, once you've seen that, you'll delight in the grace that took care of them. The benefits of the death of Christ. So all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Shall we pray? Lord, it's good for us to go to Calvary to add our voice to the witnesses, to join in when they say, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way. And it's also good to see that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord, what, a, what an action we see the world getting very enthusiastic about some actions. Somebody wins this or somebody does that. 
or whatever it is. It's nothing in comparison to what happened at the cross. There our sins were gathered together, and there they were all placed on Jesus to pay the penalty for them. Lord, we look back. The cross is all history now, as far as the event itself is concerned. And we look back, and there might be a danger that we treat it like all historical events. Brings about good results, but we don't take the time to visit where it all occurred. Help us, Lord, to go to Calvary, to go there often, and just see what took place. We thank you for your word, which enables us to do it. Your word takes us to the cross. We thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to go there and feast our eyes and our souls on the suffering Savior. So, Lord, help us to do that for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing Psalm 23 in conclusion. Some sing psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, no want shall I know. He makes me lie down where the green pastures grow. He leads me to rest where the calm waters flow. We'll sing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, no one shall I know. He makes me lie down where the green pastures grow. He leads me to rest where the calm waters flow. He Yeah.
Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.